This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp and Nexo.io. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hi, everyone. I'm Sheila Warren, and welcome to this week's Money Reimagined. For this episode, we're going back to fundamentals. What is crypto for? And even more importantly, who is it for? If you've been listening closely to this show, you'll notice that so much about reimagining money isn't really about the money at all. It's about many of the systems and complexities that surround it. So today we're going to talk about cross-border aid. In previous episodes, we've talked about the philanthropic industrial complex and how challenging it can be to fund local grassroots organizations, particularly in times of crisis. This topic is one that the World Economic Forum's Digital Currency Governance Consortium, which is comprised of 85 organizations across 33 countries around the world, addressed in our recently released compendium. In that work, we noted that the biggest challenges facing cross-border aid disbursement are human, process, and geopolitical challenges, which technology alone cannot remedy. Now, I talk a lot about the enabling environment in which technology is deployed, made up of regulation, business practice, and of course, societal norms around engagement. In the context of cross-border aid, all of these factors play a significant role. With this reality in mind, there is a range of cross-border aid pilots being conducted using blockchain-based digital aid solutions, primarily because of some of the potential benefits that technology might enable, like increased traceability of donor funds and transparency, the ability to automate quantified impact assessments, increased access to funds for people in need, and the potential to make funds transfer more cost-efficient. Serious ethical questions and nuances arise regarding the testing of emerging technologies, any emerging technologies, on people who may be caught up in crisis or find themselves in a vulnerable state, as there are considerable risks to tracking targeted groups of people. However, vulnerable populations also risk being left behind as technology advances, thereby exacerbating digital divide. Given the current momentum and volume of pilot projects, it is likely that cross-border aid disbursement will continue to include an even increase the use of blockchain-based digital aid over the next decade. There may be potential for crypto in connection with other innovations to improve upon the current aid system, but it's going to take addressing some of the major barriers to accessing aid and development funds, things like connectivity, identity, know your customer data protection, just to name a few. And these are areas that have in fact seen a lot of activity outside the blockchain space in recent years, including from those building on a long history of international development and humanitarian efforts all around the world. As an example, one long-standing challenge is the fragility of government's willingness to accept aid from foreign governments. Maduro's regime in Venezuela, for one, does not accept aid from the United States. So the company Circle used the AirTM app to send a stablecoin, which could bypass the state-controlled banking system to assist healthcare workers during the pandemic, and other examples abound. We'll be exploring the challenges and opportunities in this space with two more excellent guests in this episode. We'll be talking to Sara Pontigliano, Chief Executive of ODI, a member of the UN Secretary General's Sixth Advisory Group of the UN Peacebuilding Fund, and who is also on the Digital Currency Governance Consortium Steering Committee at the World Economic Forum. 
And in full disclosure, I very recently joined the board of trustees of ODI, which I'm absolutely thrilled about. We'll also be talking to Sasha Kapadia, Director of Humanitarian and Development, which is a social enterprise within MasterCard focused on driving human impact and commercial results. Her team innovates across a number of dimensions, technology, product, partnerships, and business model to serve marginalized communities and those living in remote disconnected environments all over the world. She focuses on a digital infrastructure that connects individuals to critical services like healthcare, education, aid, agricultural marketplaces, and micro-commerce. Before we greet our guests, though, let's say hello to my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hey, Sheila. Good to see you. <laughs> Look, really glad we'd bring this thing back to, to basics. This is it. Like, you know, why do we bother? You know, what are we talking about? Unless yeah. we're uh, grappling with these, these bigger, deeper problems, right? Money's for everybody. Let's get it right. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think that we spent a lot of time on the show talking about challenges of the current system. And, and it's important to also connect that to potential for new systems. And I think it's interesting as regulation legislation talk heats up all around the world, how much is financial inclusion going to be front and center? And that helps to kind of not only make the progressive case we talked about on the show, uh, but also I think it's just a moral imperative for us to really be making sure that we are not creating a more stratified society using technology as has happened at, at times in the past. So I'd love to bring in our guests to, to chat about this with us. Maybe, Sarah, we'll start with you. First, just give us a quick overview of ODI's you know, research areas. You're doing so much work all around the world. And kind of what's the current state of play of, of cross-border aid right now? Thanks, Sheila. It's a real pleasure to be joining the conversation. As you know, I'm very passionate about this. And we are passionate about this at ODI, global think tank that does a lot of work on you know, trying to address all series of global challenges, but working particularly in lower middle-income countries and in countries affected by crisis is at the heart of what ODI does. And for many, many years, I've done research on how to improve humanitarian assistance. And in fact, you know, some of our most uh, uh, impactful research, I'd say, has been in the, in the area of financing and in the area of you know, aid disbursement, because we started what in the sector is called you know, the cash revolution back in the early 2000s. So all the research that led to cash, we say cash, of course, you know, digital money, mobile money, digital transfers are part of the same. You know, revolution started with the work, with the research work that we did at ODI between 2003 and 2006, which was really the evidence base for pushing and for more humanitarian assistance to be delivered through direct transfers to, to people. Now, you would think that 20 years later, this would be the bulk of what humanitarians do, but it isn't at all. Um, and it's, it's taken a lot of work to persuade the industry that, you know, people need to be more dignified, you know, when they're in crisis in terms of receiving um, assistance and the way we would like to have money to spend on what we consider as priorities in our own, you know, well-functioning, established societies is the same for people in crisis and probably even more. Cash, so to speak, or sort of direct transfers of money is only today a fifth of what humanitarian assistance is globally. But that's actually a victory because uh, only five years ago, it was only 8% of you know, the total level of humanitarian assistance, of international humanitarian assistance. So after the World Humanitarian Summit of 2016, where there was a lot of push really to change you know, the way in which uh, assistance is delivered, we have seen uh, a serious increase and a real revolution you know, in the way humanitarian action is conceived and, and disbursed. So you know, it, it, just in 2019, we had a disbursement of 5.6 billion in cash and virtual assistance, um, so to quote, including through, you know, digital transfers. And of course, digital transformation is at the heart, taking these efforts of the humanitarian system, you know, farther along. 
there is still a lot of resistance. I mean, cash in itself has become uh, more established, but again, you know, just because of COVID, we've gone to 20% because, you know, even two years ago, we were still around 17%. COVID though has, has obviously accelerated the transformation. And now I think is the time to show what else is possible if we really use, you know, digitally enabled transactions to go even farther. So Sasha, I'd love to hear from you, from your perspective, you know, what are you seeing as kind of the trends, direction of travel? And and what is your frame on how COVID-19 has affected the landscape? Well, thanks for having me. And I couldn't agree with Sarah more. COVID has accelerated the transformation to digital, not just in the way that we serve people who are underserved, but in the way that humanitarian organizations operate. I mean, essentially overnight, they've had to determine how best to run their operations, often remotely, right? You had field staff who maybe were in communities for years who were all of a sudden getting sent back to their home countries and you had to rely upon local support, local infrastructure to deliver services. So it's been a real revolution, I would say, in the way that humanitarians are now doing their work. Technology is obviously an enabler of all of that, but as Sarah alluded to, it's a real challenge, I think, in trying to sort out how best to deploy that technology, because there's still some reluctance, I would say, to rely upon private sector capabilities to help establish the infrastructure that's necessary in order for us to go fully digital. So I would say it's, it's a dynamic time, it's an exciting time, but it's still incredibly challenging because of the process, because of the bureaucracy, because of the, the change management that needs to take place in order for us to do things differently and in a durable way. Sasha, do you think that some of that reluctance to deploy private sector solutions, is it about data privacy? Is it about big tech? What do you think are the, the reasons, or maybe to both of you, what are, what are the reasons for that? The motivations of private sector companies are always called into question because there's the presumption of some sort of nefarious, like extractive intent for the private sector to be involved in this work. It's just not the case. We at MasterCard always say that we have to rely upon each other's core strengths in order to serve more effectively and more efficiently. And a company like MasterCard, we don't have offices in the outposts where humanitarian aid is being delivered, but international humanitarian organizations do. And they have intimate knowledge of the needs of the communities and they know how to target individuals appropriately and they know what modalities to use. But when it comes to then deploying those modalities, whether we're talking about digital vouchers or mobile money or payment cards, I think here is where the private sector should come in and essentially be allowed to do what it does best, which is to stand up something that has some uh, robust and stable. It's more of a, I think, a mindset, a perception and a mindset that needs to be addressed I also think there's a little bit, and I'm not being so diplomatic here, but there's a bit of a scope creep issue also that comes into play here, where you see entities setting up innovation shops to start building technologies or building apps or or whatever you you, want to call it. But is that technology that gets developed out of an incubator, is it going to be something that can be resilient, that can be long-lasting, can be maintained and secured over the long term, Um, because all of that requires significant investment. 
And it's an area where the private sector is already making that investment because that's part of its core competency, its core strength. But is a humanitarian organization well-suited to continue to develop and support an app? Uh, you know, your guess is Me, I'm itching to get in. <laughs> Sasha and I have been discussing many, many times and also with other colleagues at MasterCard. And actually, Sasha, I think you have been very diplomatic because I would go farther. Um, and I think it's actually really problematic, you know, what we see um, in terms of how these, you know, innovations need to be taken forward. Because you're absolutely right. I am really flabbergasted by the extent to which organizations, agencies, you know, even NGOs have been, particularly UN agencies, but also NGOs have been going to try and develop the technology that the private sector has available. And the kind of stuff we've ended up with, which is very clunky, cumbersome, doesn't function well, is actually less secure what we had before than the offline solutions. And all of that, you know, in the name of, you know, some sort of protection concerns or, you know, around data privacy, around vulnerability of um, people that would be receiving these assistance, which are, of course, valid concerns, but they could have been addressed a lot better using technology that, again, in our own rich countries, well-established countries, we use all the time. And unfortunately, it's because the sector suffers from what I call, you know, cultural paternalism on one hand. And from incentives that are deeply, you know, distorted on the other hand, which is all about, you know, expanding budgets and expanding number of staff. So, you know, it feels on this one side, the benign side, if you want, that feels that people who are receiving humanitarian assistance would be a threat, you know, particularly in terms of the data where they could end up. I would argue, though, that companies that work around digital security would be much better place to guarantee that privacy, to support, you know, to find the solution. And is it not as if we didn't have this problem before when the transactions were not digital? You know, data breaches have been unfortunately very common in a number of countries where we've delivered aid for a long time. And on the other hand, the incentives, I mean, as you say, there is, there's a lot of discussions around the motives of the private sector. And, and I think a lot of sort of naive assumption, you know, that the private sector could operate without actually trying, you know, to make this work commercially. I have for a long time, you know, argued that, you know, if, if profit is ethical, is, you know, sort of well earned, I mean, why not use, you know, working better with companies that would help us, you know, deliver assistance more efficiently, better, in a more targeted way, in a safer way, and so forth. But this is not the mindset of everyone. But there is another, another side I think is actually more problematic, and it is about self-preservation. You know, it's about not wanting to open up for the benefit of people who are in crisis and really making sure that aid can be delivered more efficiently, faster, more securely, because ultimately, if we really opened up, you know, the way in which we deliver assistance, that's what it would end up being. Cash was already a big fight and it's taken 20 years to get to a modest increase. Digital will be a stronger fight, but it's one that we need to, you know, continue to to push because it is for the benefit of people that are actually the most disadvantaged, ultimately. Quantstamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for Quantstamp means a great work-life balance an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company. Learn more at quantstamp.com careers. 
Nexo is a trusted and easy-to-use crypto platform where you can buy cryptocurrencies at the touch of a button and start earning up to 17% annual interest that is paid out daily. They support all of the major assets on the market and even allow you to swap one asset for another or borrow cash against your crypto without selling it. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. So whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most of your crypto today with Nexo at nexo.io. No, I think it's so important to distinguish. I think a lot of people, when they think about humanitarian aid, think about disaster response. And that is just one subset of humanitarian aid. And I think it's really important to frame this and to remind our, our listeners and others and ourselves, for that matter, that you know, humanitarian assistance, there is a longevity issue to it. Like it is not the kind of acute thing that people think about where there's a typhoon, you go in, you know, you do some, some assistance, and then you think about you leave. Even in that situation, there's a whole period of reconstruction that doesn't get funded. It doesn't get the crowdfunding. You know, you go to the concert, well, back in the day, you go to the concert and do your $5 or whatever it was, right? That doesn't happen. But also, as we move forward into a world where we're going to have more and more climate displaced persons, we're going to have more food deserts that emerge all over the world, uh, which is a part of going to be climate refugees. We have to think about the fact that we're going to need very systemic and systematic solutions that are set up with robust infrastructure that's going to be persistent. It's not going to be something that you set up and then dismantle. It's going to probably be almost permanent installations that are going to need support, I think, from governments, right, in addition to private sector actors. The last point I'll make is something that blew my mind when I was thinking about, so we've talked on the show about how I kind of got awakened, if you will, uh, by Haiti and what happened with Haiti and the earthquake. And that's kind of when I became aware of just some of the major challenges in humanitarian assistance. And one thing that's really not talked about speaking of playing to strengths, is that in an acute crisis, the first responders are almost always military personnel. That's a reality. Like they're the first responders. They're there with the water and the food and the helicopters and the whatever's needed to deal with that acute trauma, that acute crisis. And then you get kind of the Red Cross, Red Crescent, and then ideally, in my mind, at least local grassroots organizations and local governments and others that have the ability to deploy some of this technology that perhaps is built in public-private partnerships. But it's not where I thought the conversation would go, but a really interesting reminder that we all have a role to play and that it's important that we kind of be very thoughtful about how we build these systems and infrastructure to assume that we are going to be, unfortunately, in a permanent state of some sort of crisis in different parts of the world. Actually, there is a very important statistics, you know, to share with your listener that 80% of international maintenance assistance is spent in protracted crises. So these are crises that last at least, you know, six years or more. And in fact, the vast majority of crises get close to 20 years. And so, you know, sort of thinking of this urgent phase of disbursement is just a fallacy because we know that in, in particularly in refugees crisis, you know, the average is around 19 years. That's how long a crisis lasts. And so from the very start, a number of contexts where the humanitarian system has worked over and over again, and actually has never really left, you know, for sometimes even 30 years or more. And in a lot of other crises that are more recent, like Syria, which is already, of course, you know, more than 10 years, from the start, we knew it would last long. And so thinking differently should have been the imperative. Um, but yeah, we failed yet again. So like in the light of this emerging picture, right, on this idea that crises just become quasi-permanent, it's going to get worse, climate change, everything else. And the points that Sasha was making, and Sarah, you were also alluding to about the need for the private sector to play this innovative role. These are big problems. Innovation is needed. The private sector is the best. Most people can get behind that. We still have, in my mind, 
a major barrier to that innovation that lies with the public sector. And you're talking about money flows and everything else. This is a topic that comes up all the time on Money Reimagined, but I frame it as like the inherent contradiction between, on the one hand, this almost universal support for financial inclusion, and on the other hand, this almost universal support amongst policymakers for rigid AML, identity checking, mm. all these rules in place that constrain the ability of the underprivileged to access the existing yeah. financial system. And everybody in Congress seems to be able to think that they can do these two things at once and they can't, right? There are no innovative solutions to that, but they're not able to be introduced because you need this kind of more open system, not just in terms of open technology. You literally need open rules from the regulatory framework to let those innovators come in. What's going on here? How do we fix it? Is there any sign? Because I see the FATF and others just getting stricter and stricter. Is there any, anybody who's taking this impending crisis that's coming, these millions of people who are going to be excluded from the system, the idea that we need to build on an ongoing basis for this need and saying, you know what, let's throw out the old regime and start thinking differently about how we can do this. And it's obviously very relevant to crypto and blockchain. So I'd like to throw that to, to both of you, maybe Sasha, since you, know, you were looking specifically at innovators, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, it's an important consideration and one that at MasterCard we've looked at considerably, right? Because if you think about the tools that we have at our disposal, prepaid cards, debit cards, mobile money transfers, there's always a KYC requirement that we have to address in order to be able to deliver assistance using our tools. Unfortunate, right, that it's really country to country. So in some places, they have been more flexible. You know, they've set up tiered regimes. They've created windows where acknowledge that it's a crisis state or an emergency state and that people are going to be allowed to, say institutions are going to be allowed to provide SIM cards or, or provide bank accounts to people without the same sort of documentation or, or requirements. It's a real gap. It's a huge gap. And I think that policy regulatory environment is always slow to catch up, isn't it? Especially if we're talking about this world of digital currencies and cryptocurrencies. I think it's more than being slow, though. There's a very powerful industrial kind of need to protect an existing system, and those systems exist in that context. I'm not trying to sound conspiratorial. I just literally think that's what drives it. And to be honest, it's not just being slow. It, it looks like it's going backwards. The mm. Financial Action Task Force has put more and more rules around KYC, AML, and you know, and everybody's worried about money laundering. We should be, presumably, right? But it's the framework seems to be tougher, not more lenient, is what I'm trying to get at here. Yeah, although I think we're also seeing innovations from other countries and countries that are experimenting, you know, whether it is with cryptocurrency or CBDCs that potentially could, you know, provide alternative models. We see that a lot in the small islands, definitely in the Pacific, now in the Caribbean, that is definitely providing different models, which you know, particularly natural hazard-related disasters are going to provide an alternative to deliver aid. And those who are starting to engage in transfers with, you know, digital systems already operating in these countries will see that there is a different way. So it is then incumbent on, on us working on these systems to surface, you know, the best use cases, the best, you know, sort of uh, the best practices going to emerge from these responses, you know, particularly from the humanitarian side to make the case for other contexts. But interestingly, these innovations are coming either from governments or, you know, sort of local experimentation and not from the humanitarian system, which I actually think is part of the problem and mm. part of the resistance. So we see the innovation happening at a different level. But what I see 
instead coming from within you know, the humanitarian systems, it is, you know, sort of some experimentation around, you know, the use of blockchain, and, but, but in really sort of closed loop type of uh, mm. approaches, which in the end, again, forces people to just use whatever they receive in a particular context is sort of still the aid is very constrained. You know, you can use this, the, whatever you receive to go to the shop, the WFP decides that you're going to, you know, have access to, which is, you know, what they've done with the building blocks. And that to me really just undermines the whole emphasis and the whole objective of trying to enable people to have, you know, more dignified access to um, humanitarian assistance. I think if you allow private sector companies to work in tandem with humanitarian organizations, you're looking at large-scale programs that establish, let's, and I, I use that word intentionally, establish digital infrastructure that is open standards-based, that allows for multiple entities to service an individual using a functional identity, right? We're not talking about a foundational identity, functional digital identity. You start to build a profile of that individual. These AML, CTF, why are they in place? It's because of risks and not having the appropriate level of assurances. But if you can start to build that profile through digital interactions that an individual is having with trusted organizations, and let's hope that governments think humanitarian organizations are trusted organizations, maybe you can sort of break the mode a bit and allow for real true innovation. Yeah, there's an interesting solution around delegation and yeah, right, creating sort of standards by which risks are assessed that don't necessarily require the heavy burdens of KYC and everything else, I think is very interesting. But Sarah, you talked about the innovation that's happening in some of these smaller countries, and it is actually regulatory innovation, I think, is part of it, which is very interesting. And, you know, we talk a lot about this in the show, and we've had a number of representatives of those smaller nations talk to us, particularly in the Caribbean. And it's an emerging picture of almost like a regulatory competition, right? Some would call it regulatory arbitrage. I actually think it's competition. It's a big difference. The idea that with this technology, smaller countries can now actually come out and suggest an alternative. And if they band together, they might actually be a challenger to the old regime. Obviously, you're going to work with whatever governments are out there. You're going to be constructive and, and useful. No one wants to be super out there is to be a total rebel. But does this create an opportunity for organizations like yours to get in and just, whether it's picking winners or not, be coming and support those innovations, those go to those places and sort of like really be agents of not just support for their people, but of, of this kind of innovative regulatory change? No, absolutely. I mean, we work very closely with the Association of Small Island States. You know, we supported like all the preparations for COP. We supported them through, you know, the COP. We, you know, sort of have people seconded to the Secretariat, and that allows us to have a really intimate pictures of what is going on, you know, with the regulatory environments. I mean, we work particularly at the climate end of that, but of course, we do a lot of work on climate finance, which you know still brings us to some of the same issues when it comes to. The regulatory environment. So it is really fascinating. And of course, we do a lot of work with China and on the digital Belt and Road Initiative, Digital Silk Road, basically, uh, which again, you know, shows uh, the level of innovation that is coming out, you know, from China around these issues and how they taking that along, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative. And I, I think you're absolutely right, Michael, we're going to see some let's say, stimulating competition in this environment coming up because, yeah, I think that there is the appetite to use, you know, the space that is offered, you know, around uh, digital currencies to really break a system that is no longer fit for purpose. You know, it's been in place for a long time, but it doesn't serve 
the needs of people in the way they should anymore. You know, I want to get back to something you were saying, Sarah, about building blocks and, and these kinds of approaches. Maybe we can talk a bit about what, what's the human experience like when you are an A recipient? You know, what have both of you heard or witnessed or experienced? You know, and let's talk a bit about that empowerment and agency, right? And how is what exists out there today maybe not as um, innovative or as forward thinking and really centering human dignity as it could be? So if you can talk to us about the status quo. Yeah, so I mean, you don't have a lot of examples, really, of where, you know, sort of the more innovative side really exists, where, where you really can relate, you know, the human experience is actually for people that experience the power of mobile mining in Somaliland, in Somalia, in Kenya, uh, not necessarily from aid organizations, but through remittances. And I think that is incredibly empowering for them because, you know, it allows them to buy and, and not just buy, to, to invest, you know, whatever money they receive in whatever is priority for them. And we know that in every single humanitarian crisis after the first six months, again, these are crises that last forever and ever, the top priority people have is education for their kids and, you know, some level of sort of being self-sufficient in their livelihoods. So it's either jobs or the ability to set up a small business to earn with dignity. What are the two things that are under-prioritized in international humanitarian assistance? Education and work, you know, employment. You know, we give all sorts of other things but that. So the power of those who receive, you know, digital transfers is precisely that, is that they feel treated as, you know, with respect, with dignity, you know, that, that they can actually choose how to move, you know, beyond the crisis. Now, it's true that I appreciate, you know, for a lot of colleagues, it's challenging in a number of contexts to conceive how you can, you know, make these transfers happen, because it's very true that in a lot of the countries where you do deliver humanitarian assistance, the infrastructure is just not there. But I do think that, you know, sometimes we, we hide behind that because, you know, a lot of crises happen more and more, you know, in urban settings or in peri-urban settings where, you know, the infrastructure, the connectivity is there. Or that, you know, people very soon end up in refugee camps where, again, you know, now, you know, connectivity is one of the priorities. So they, you know, very easily get connected right away. Then it's a matter of working, you know, around some of the issues that you've already uh, mentioned around, you know, the digital identity, particularly when it comes to refugees. You know, that is one of the challenges working with governments that don't recognize refugees or don't want to give them, you know, the required level of identity that you need, you know, to have a mobile phone or, you know, to sort of be able to. To receive transfer, but that is all stuff that you can get around. You know, I remember from a visit to Al Zatari, actually with, with the forum, and we went, you know, two, three years ago together. Those who were receiving money digitally, I mean, it was again an ATM system, again, one of these closed loop, you know, applications, but the way in which they were talking about going to the ATM, getting the money through the card, that, that was such a, a transformative experience, particularly for the women that we were talking to. Yeah, I mean, I don't use cash anymore. I just use my car to go everywhere. You know, I use card, you know, money to, to remit money, you know, electronically all the time. That's what these people want as well, especially those who know. You know, I remember a couple of times I spoke to a trauma therapist who'd been working in camps of displaced persons. And I remember her telling me, or actually multiple of them telling me, like, you, you get it. It's complicated because the, the one thing that provides immediate familiarity and agency is engaging in what we would all think of as a routine consumer transaction. 
like being a consumer and going into a shop or a tienda and having the ability to make a choice about what you spend your, whatever value you have, whatever that looks like on is actually the, the comfort of that in a displaced situation is apparently extraordinarily powerful. At the time I had mixed feelings about it, like, oh God, so unless we're engaging in these commercial transactions, we don't feel like humans, you know, but at the same time, it really is about the empowerment agency you, you talk about. Um, my undergraduate studies were in economics and my honors thesis was called, very lofty title, Gender Bias and the Allocation of Healthcare to Infants in India, okay? And one of my advisors was Amartya Sen and his, he did a lot of work with widows and on famine and just thinking about how, given this whole problem of disappearing girls, female infanticide happening in India, there was evidence, some thought, that parents were actually making the choices to starve or abandon their daughters. And that was in some cases true. But they found that where a girl child was actually born, and my research, which was, you know, humble and rudimentary, but still supported this idea very much, that actually parents were not misallocating uh, the resources, particularly in the area of healthcare. What they were doing was prioritizing slightly the boys who were going into the fields and working and providing for the family. But rather than kind of getting a boy to excellent health and letting a girl languish, it was more of a step function. So they'd get a boy to baseline, then get the girl to baseline, then get the boy child a little bit better, then get the girl child a bit better, then kind of do whatever they had with what they were given in order to ensure that everyone in their family was healthy, but they were prioritizing, it turned out, the more robust child. So if you had a more sickly or weaker kind of a boy child and a healthier, more robust girl child, that child was the one that actually got the resources first. And so it just displayed this very practical approach that most people actually have to their lives. And contrary to this kind of like luxury goods idea that you're going to go to like these vice, quote unquote, these vices and drugs and the booze and the whatnot, instead, people are really just trying to be healthy and be happy and provide for their families in ways like all the rest of us. And so the more empowerment we give, even though that models traditional true consumer transactions, that actually provides, I think, the psychological basis for being able to say, I'm taking care of my family and I can take care of myself. And I can provide even in this horrific environment surroundings that I'm trapped within. So thank you so much to both of you for helping to illuminate some of this for our listeners and, and for us today. It's really just been a privilege to have you both on to speak about this. I'd be remiss if I didn't encourage everyone to take a read of the paper that uh, Sasha and Sarah helped co-author on aid and aid disbursement as part of the Digital Currency Governance Consortium Initiative at the World Economic Forum. And I want to thank you both. My host, Michael Casey, as always, great to have you, Michael. Uh, and stay tuned next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guests Sarah Pontigliano and Sasha Capadia. Our theme song is Shepherd. This episode was produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Please send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>